everyone. Welcome to the Defiant Podcast. The internet of money is being built with blockchain technology and without banks. We call it DeFi, short for decentralized finance. And this is where you can hear the builders and users of this cutting edge world tell their stories firsthand. I'm your host, Camila Russo. In this week's episode, I speak with Dan Moorhead, the founder of one of the longest standing and largest crypto funds. Dan founded Pantera Capital in 2003 as a global macro hedge fund. In 2013, Pantera began investing in Bitcoin and quickly shifted its entire focus into crypto. Today, Pantera manages 3.8 billion in digital assets and equity and blockchain companies. Dan said he got into Bitcoin because it was the most asymmetric trade he had seen in his career, and he still believes that's the case. We talk about the performance of his funds, with the best performer being his Liquid Tokens Fund, that's up more than 300% this year. Contrary to popular belief that crypto moves together, Dan makes a case that there are big differences in how tokens trade and lots of opportunities for fund managers to deliver alpha, especially by focusing on smaller tokens. He believes DeFi is one of the biggest opportunities in crypto, as it will take a large market share from traditional finance and create new use cases that weren't possible before. Dan said Pantera is planning on increasing the Bitcoin exposure on its liquid tokens fund from zero to somewhere in the teens, while its main bet will remain DeFi. Dan is most excited about what he views is a shift in institutions' interest in crypto. Firms which had told him they would never come close to holding crypto are now wanting to dip their toes. And in a still small market, that has the potential to make big waves. Before we get to it, here's a word about our sponsors. The new Kraken app is one of the best places to invest in some of the most popular DeFi assets like Uniswap, Aave, Polkadot tokens, and more. Just download the app and get started in minutes. Plus, you can earn additional rewards through Kraken's industry-leading staking product. Payouts are twice a week, and you can earn up to 20% annually on some of your favorite cryptos. Sign up today at kraken.com defiant, or type Kraken in the App Store to learn more. Don't let high gas costs keep you out of Ethereum. At Balancer, you can trade all you want and get most of the gas costs back in your pocket. In their new Bal for Gas campaign, traders are receiving six figures worth of Bal tokens every week. And with V2 just around the corner, Balancer is becoming the one-stop shop for DeFi liquidity. Balancer V2 brings stable pools and weighted pools tightly integrated under a single protocol, flash loans lending via asset managers, and much more. Check it out at balancer.finance. Ensign provides an easy way to build, scale, and monetize DeFi investment strategies. If high gas prices are shutting you out of DeFi, fear not. Ensign is now running a gas subsidy program. The app makes it easy for investors to pull together on strategies lowering costs. The Ensign interface allows anyone to trade, lend, deposit to AMM pools, farm, stake, and more. It is a non-custodial solution and allows for real-time reporting, security, and transparency. Sign up today on Ensign.finance. Experience DeFi. Deposit, earn, and borrow on Aave. Aave is a decentralized, open-source, and non-custodial liquidity protocol to earn interest on deposits and borrow assets. Deposit and start earning interest in real-time directly in your wallet, and swap any of your deposited assets at any time to get some of the best deals on the market. Aave protocol liquidity pools are now available on Ethereum and on the sidechain Polygon. Head over to app.ave.com to get started today. The Index Co-op is on a mission to make crypto investing simple, accessible, and safe for everyone. They've built the market-leading index products, DPI, the DeFi Pulse Index, MPI, the Metaverse Index, and BED, for one-click crypto exposure. Additionally, their flexible leverage series grants safe 2x exposure to popular crypto assets like ETH or BTC with low liquidation risk and low cost to maintain your position. 
To buy or learn more about these products, go to indexcoop.com. Okay, uh, here we are with Dan Moorhead of Antara Capital. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the Define podcast. It's great to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. So a brief intro, uh, Dan founded Pantera in 2003 as a global macro hedge fund. And in 2013, um, uh, Pantera began investing in, in Bitcoin, so pretty early on uh, for, for crypto. Today, Pantera is one of the biggest crypto funds managing 3.8 uh, billion. And uh, previously, Dan uh, was head of macro trading and CFO at Tiger Management and began uh, his career at Goldman Sachs. So, Dan, you, you were one of the first major hedge funds to buy Bitcoin. I mean, 2013 is pretty early days. I'd love to go through your thought process. What made you shift your focus to Bitcoin in the first place? Yeah, so my career has been in global macro style investing. Uh, lastly, as you said, it was a tiger management where fly around the world, go to, you know, different interesting capitals and try and find trades that were very asymmetric and looking for disruptions. Uh, sometimes they're technology like Tesla Motors, sometimes they're political like Russian privatization, uh, but trades where your downside is much smaller than your upside. And, you know, those trades... We're all interesting, and um, but they were specific to one country or maybe even a region, but that was it. And typically just one asset class, like just bonds or just equities or something like that. So um, in 2011, I started thinking about Bitcoin, uh, but it took a couple of years to get my head around it. But ultimately came to the view that it would be the biggest disruption in my career and the most asymmetric trade. And that, that's really the thing that I was thinking at the beginning is that, yeah, you know, there's a lot of ways that Bitcoin could fail, but, you know, if it worked, it would be um, disrupting such valuable things like, you know, wealth storage and cross-border money movement, things like that, that it had enormous upside. And I still believe that. I, I think, uh, although we've come a long way in the eight years since um, we launched our first fund, um, you know, it took 50 years for the internet to get where it is today. I think it's going to take decades for this thing to fully build out. Um, so it's really exciting. We're really at the beginning of something that's very important. And then the other reason I'm excited about it is it's it's not just money. You know, I think we're going to make some good returns. We're going to help some investors get, you know, uh, better IRRs. But it really is changing the world for the better. And ultimately, I think there's going to be billions of people using Bitcoin and other uh, protocols. And that's going to help them save money, help them have their wealth not be confiscated by their government, uh, help them, you know, not pay exorbitant uh, remittance fees. You know, all those things um, are, you know, huge positives that Bitcoin and blockchain is bringing. So, um, so back then, did you, were you in 2013, did you uh, shift Pantera completely in, into crypto or, or was it more gradual? Uh, no, I, I fell down the rabbit hole and I haven't bought anything other than crypto in eight years. Um, oh my God. I often have, uh, you know, old friends like Mike Novogratz will call me up. Like, what do you think of the Brazilian reality or something? Like, I have no idea. Like, I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't study anything, you know, even the S&P 500 or big things like that. I have no idea uh, where they are, or what the value is. So is, you know, it's 100% crypto. And I think... You know, that, that is, it is that important that at least for my career, I'm devoting the second half of it just to crypto. Oh, so interesting. Um, okay, so I'd like to dive a bit deeper into uh, Pantera and how, how it's made up. So you have the original Bitcoin fund, uh, which you established back in, in 2013, but you also have other funds. So, um, the, there's uh, the liquid token fund, which holds, uh, uh, tokens including ETH, Maker, um, Aave and Uni, uh, the early stage fund, uh, where I see a lot of kind of ETH, uh, like layer one competitors, Polkadot, Near, um, uh, Avalanche, and um, then the venture fund, which I, I assume it's like more like also equity investments, right? So so there's uh, Brave, Coinbase, BAT, um a wire. Um, and this year, uh, you launched another fund, a blockchain fund, which I understand has exposure to all of these funds. 
Um, so uh, just to start digging into all these, uh, which of, of these funds has performed the best so far this year? Um, and by how much has the top performer uh, gained? Yeah, so, so it's a fun question. Um, and it's one of the reasons we're launching a new fifth fund. Um, having launched the first crypto fund in the US, it was just Bitcoin. And then we did just venture. And then we did just early stage tokens. So by kind of the virtue of being the first to do all these, we ended up with four completely separate funds. And any asset can only go in one of our uh, existing funds. So they're essentially mutually ex exclusive. So then you get the question of which one performed best. That's a fun question to answer, but then obviously one of our four funds has to perform the least good or the worst. Mm -hmm. uh, and asset allocators don't like that. They uh, A lot of them would like to allocate to the concept of blockchain, but they don't want to pick, is it Bitcoin or is it you know DeFi or is it equity? And so that's why we are launching a new fund uh, that includes all those different asset classes. But to um, answer your question, our liquid token fund has performed the best this year. It's up 322% year-to-date, and Bitcoin itself is up 56. Um, and then our early-stage token fund is a 260 for the onshore and 360 for the offshore. Mm, wow, okay. So I guess like the worst performer is uh, the Bitcoin fund and then the other kind of altcoins, but I don't like that word, but non-Bitcoin tokens are outperforming kind of the OG. Yeah, this year, um, other tokens other than Bitcoin have outperformed. And then we can add some value by taking risk off before the market falls and then adding it back mm -hmm. uh, at the bottom. So some of the performance of our liquid token fund is that we took a lot of risk off in uh, the middle of February. And then there was a, I think, 27% correction at that time and put some risk back on. So some of the value is from actively trading. Got it. Yeah, I, I wanted to get into that because, you know, Crypto is so correlated uh, to to Bitcoin, um, and it seems that especially when the market is volatile, it it, it becomes even more uh, correlated. So, um, as a fund manager, how can you actually uh, provide alpha? And when and when you have like these uh, five different funds, like how do you manage to dif differentiate the the value proposition of, of each one when every token trades so similarly? Yeah, so um, on the second question first is to differentiate them. Since our, our four funds do trade mutually exclusive things, so if it's an equity, it has to go in our venture fund. If it's a liquid token like um, you know uh, Ethereum or, or Bitcoin, it has to go in the liquid token fund. And if it hasn't yet started trading, it has to go in the early stage. So historically, we've had you know, mutually exclusive funds. We now want to have this uh, all-in-one fund so that we can trade these big swings between value. And we've just seen it in the markets. Uh, tokens reset instantaneously, for better or worse. Uh, and just recently, they came off 55 60%. Um, whereas venture is very slow moving. Um, you know, people are still doing term sheets from three or four months ago. Entrepreneurs still want the prices they and the valuations they heard three or four months ago. So venture evolves very slowly. It takes you know six or nine months for the prices to reset. Uh, and so in this new fund, we're able to buy tokens when they're cheap, like we did uh, at the end of June, beginning of July, when they were very cheap, uh, and then ultimately sell them back out. Um, you know when uh, tokens are expensive and, and venture is cheap, it allows us to to balance between those two. Got it. Just how, how do you generate alpha when everything is so correlated? Yeah, so that is it's a great question. It, it's not as correlated as it seems. Um, mm -hmm. People do have the view that, you know, everything does go up and down together. And for very short periods of time, that's true. Um, but, you know, over uh, multiple months or even years, things really do trade very differently. Uh, you know, we have new tokens that are in the top five now that weren't even in the top five, you know, a few months ago. Uh, and those those do change quite a bit. So there is a lot of alpha opportunity by being in the right tokens at the right time. Mm -hmm. And I think you've seen, you know, over the last four or five years, the 
you know, it'd be fun stats to calculate how many different tokens have been in the top five. It's been an amazing amount. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum have been in the top five, but those other slots uh, change quite a bit. And even just a very simple metric is Bitcoin dominance, the percentage of the entire market cap that is Bitcoin. That changes a lot. In January, it was at 70. It touched 39% uh, a few months ago. Uh, now it's at 44. And so, you know, that's a very good indication that things don't all go up and down at the same time. Um, you know, some things, you know, ebb and flow. We also follow a stat, which is the percentage of the market that's not Bitcoin or Ethereum. You know, those two are, you know, very, very uh, dominant. And in January, that hit only 16%. So, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum were 84% of the entire market. And the other 5,000 coins were only 16 um, That's uh, now up to 37%, you know, so it's du- more than doubled. But that's a good indication that, you know, things don't all trade the same. You know, they go uh, different uh, things come in and out of favor. Super interesting. Um, before I, I get to the question of like how how you uh, make sure that you're picking tokens that will be in the top five, uh, just want to uh, get the, the 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 question on uh, how much you raise for your blockchain fund. Oh yeah, so we uh, are going to be in the market for a year uh, from now mm-hmm. until March of next year. Um, and in the first three months, we raised a bit over half, I think about $350 million. Uh, and then most of the institution or institutional investors we're talking to, they're probably going to need six or nine more months to um, do their work. And so uh, we'll know the ultimate size of the fund in March next year. Got it. How, like, do you have a target for it? How big do you We originally targeted $600 million. Mm-hmm. Um, that is about 15% more than we currently manage, so it's a, a number that's doable. Uh, and you know, frankly, we picked a number that we thought we could raise without an enormous amount of uh, the investment team's time. The markets are stronger than we anticipated. Uh, we didn't think we'd raise over half of it in the first three months. So um, I would think we're going to ultimately end up with an amount that's larger than our target. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. so. Back to the question I, I, I had on kind of the top tokens. What do you evaluate on, on your investments, on your like liquid token investments to make sure that you are getting to, that you are holding those top uh, ones? Oh, so, you know, it's, it's fun that you ask it that way is um, we do own some of the top tokens. You know, we own a lot of Ethereum and we've owned Bitcoin uh, in big positions over the years, but we're not uh, trying to. Uh, replicate the mega caps and we're not trying to be an index and so we often actually own a lot of the kind of numbers 20 through 100 if you will of the the, the list of uh, most popular tokens uh, our industry normally has an enormous amount in the top two as i said it went up to 84 uh, percent and then it really has another 30 percent or so uh sometimes or you know uh, uh, in the next you know kind of numbers three through ten uh, and then very small amount of the market cap is the tokens, you know, 11 through 100. That's where we see a huge amount of the value. Uh, those are the ones that can go up, uh, you know, much more than the mega cap. So we've historically been underweight the two biggest, uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin, and massively overweight the smaller tokens, the ones, um, you know, like the, Polkadot's and five coins a few years ago that nobody had heard of, but then ultimately will become very valuable. Right. I guess uh, that's that's. I guess I I, I should rephrase my, my question. How do you um, uh, pick those small cap tokens? Uh, like, how do you? Because obviously, like those are the ones that have uh, a, a more potential to grow faster than the ones that you know that are larger uh, in theory um so yeah what what do you look for to to um, make sure you're picking kind of the the biggest gainers sure so i mean it's similar to venture uh mm-hmm. early stage venture investing we're looking for you know really strong team that has uh, a product that um, you know is is even doable there there have been a lot of white papers that we think are literally impossible that even if they had a thousand developers in a thousand years. They couldn't actually build what they're uh, mm-hmm. promising to do. Um, looking at the 
you know, the market size, making sure it's a, a product that, you know, is, is large enough. Um, obviously, the valuation matters that, uh, you know, if it's a, it's a great team and a great product, but the valuation's, you know, high. There have been a few product projects that have been valued in the multiple billions, and, you know, it's really hard to 100x from, from there. Uh, and then the, the last thing that is unique to um, cryptocurrency protocol investing is you have to make a subjective guess as to whether the development team is going to be able to build a community. Mm-hmm. These are open source pieces of software. Uh, you know, just having a really cool widget isn't enough. You have to motivate other people to build on it, to, to improve the code itself. And so we're trying to make uh, an assessment of whether the, the team's going to be able to motivate and rally people behind it. And, you know, I think, you know, the Ethereum community is a really good example. There's enormous passion uh, on that community to, to build and develop. And we're looking for projects that can do that. Oh, so interesting. Um, yeah, community, I think, is is a, a really important aspect to uh, protocol building and something that maybe wasn't considered as much in Web2 investments where, you know, you you just need or or just need uh, the, the right team. Um, so, like, what are good indications for you that a, a project will be able to rally a good community behind it? Yeah, it's, it is subjective. It's, you know, we've met a ton of entrepreneurs and we're trying to get a sense of, you know, whether they like communicating, whether they like building, um, you know, a broader base. And like you said, in, in a lot of Web 2.0 applications, if you build a really cool product and launch it, if people, you know, if the consumer is using it, that's all that matters. You don't need other people to build other applications on top of it. Where in blockchain, you do need to motivate people to build things. Uh, to make your blockchain useful. Yeah, it's a different um, like uh, thought process, I think, um, and just like different business model as well. Um, I, I want to get into your your thoughts on DeFi. So you've said before that you think decentralized finance um, is one of the biggest opportunities in the blockchain space. So um, why do you believe uh, that's the case? Yeah, I think that a way to think about it is um, the other protocols of the Internet have radically changed everything else in our lives, you know, commerce, communication, everything. But finance really hasn't been touched by the Internet. Um, you know, banks still operate basically uh, the way they did you know, potentially centuries ago. Uh, credit card companies still charge the same rate as 1958. And, you know, remittance companies are still doing the same thing they've been doing for 140 years. So it's, you know, the internet really didn't come to finance and that's basically what blockchain generally is, but DeFi specifically is bringing the ability for anybody with a smartphone to interact with anybody else on earth with a smartphone uh, and not pay an expensive middleman. And those payment rails are actually really expensive. You know, 300 basis points per credit card transaction is, is really crazy in uh, this century. Um, the average remittance cost is 8%, which, you know, for people in finance, it's just a number. But for the migrant, it's a month's wages. They have to spend an entire month working to pay their remittance company. So the promise of DeFi is to connect people that want to borrow money with people that want to lend money, or people that want to buy a security or asset, digital asset, with people that want to sell a digital asset. And those are massive massive market opportunities. A, a good example would be, you know, we've been investing in, in DeFi since it was, you know, kind of a just a white paper and there was really nothing actually happening. Uh, a year ago, finally, things started clicking over and, and people started using it. So we're really excited. There's, you know, 100 billion of, of uh, locked up DeFi now. And that's, that's so exciting because it's so much bigger than it was uh, when we got started. But there's 100 trillion of bonds out there. So there's an enormous opportunity for DeFi um, to intermediate between borrowers and lenders. So how do you think, how big do you think DeFi can actually be? Like, do you think it, it can take, completely take over um, the, the traditional finance? And so the 100 trillion that's uh, out there in, in bonds will be replaced by on-chain securities, for example. And same thing with equities, uh, same thing with all the other um, assets. Well, I think it's going to take a big market share of the existing legacy business. But the exciting uh, 
that with new technologies, they always create opportunities you didn't even imagine. So I think you're going to see um, DeFi take you know a good chunk of the market share from the existing borrowing and lending uh, systems, but also there'll be new ways people do business that we aren't imagining yet. Mm, totally. Um, with DeFi, how are you investing? So uh, I, I know you're 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 buying kind of uh, tokens of DeFi protocols themselves, but are you actively involved in staking or uh, yield farming or uh, governance? Like how, how involved are you? Yeah, so I, I would say that the answer is, you know, we do, we are involved in all those things, but our main focus is trying to make uh, returns on the token itself. And if you think about it, our eight different funds over eight years, our average IRR is 100. 10%. So we're trying to make, you know, triple digits returns on the token itself and then staking and yield farming, you know, other um, returns are additive or, you know, they're, they're nice to have, but they normally don't drive the initial decision. And then once we're investing mm -hmm. in a protocol, we're certainly trying to be as active as we can on governance, uh, staking, you know, we're trying to be uh, as positive in the communities we can be, but it's normally not driving our decision. I'm sure in time there'll be fixed income type funds that form in the mm. blockchain ecosystem that, you know, you know, everything we're doing is replicating what's being done in the normal fund management community. And so I'm sure one of our peers is going to you know, soon have a, you know, kind of yield based uh, cryptocurrency fund and you know, there'll be a whole fixed income market. We're not actively looking to do that ourselves, but I think someone will do it uh, right. in time. Um, yeah, that would be interesting. Are you kind of not looking at that because the your your focus on just like the really high yield uh, stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think that really is the challenge of the blockchain mm -hmm. industry. There's so many opportunities. You really have mm -hmm. to triage it and and you know uh, go after the ones that a you think are the biggest, and b you know you have some competitive advantage. So. We've been in the early stage venture space and the early stage token space. Um, you know, we've added some HFT trading in our liquid token fund. You know, so we're, we're trying to uh, expand into adjacencies, and you know, ultimately we will do some kind of uh, yield-oriented fund. But we just, you know, we have there's so many other things we're trying to do that we we haven't had time to focus on. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so you've mentioned you are kind of pretty actively trading these tokens, but like how how active like are, are is is it like you're you're in these funds daily shifting positions? Um, do you have some some sort of bot that takes care of that? Like how how do you manage all these all these tokens? Yeah, so our main investing is uh, venture style investing where we're looking for good projects. We invest, we hold it for many years. So our early mm -hmm. stage token fund. Uh, you know, buy things like Filecoin and Podot and still hold them. So, you know, it's been a long time. Um, whereas in one of our funds, the Liquid Token Fund does trade, you know, actively trade Liquid Tokens. And even in that fund, I would say that we are mainly making discretionary uh, investments on things that we think will hold for, say, four, five, six months. Uh, and you know, a good example was one that I, I started out with earlier is Bitcoin dominance. You know, in January, we had a lot of Bitcoin, uh, hit 70% dominance, and we sold uh, Bitcoin to buy uh, more DeFi-type tokens. You know, it's eight months later, we're probably going to reverse that trade and buy much more Bitcoin and and uh, take down risk and, and other things. Um, so that fund is typically making uh, trades that are six, eight months uh, type holding periods. However, 5 to 20% over time of that fund is a HFT quant strategy. So we're sucking in mm. thousands of pieces of data uh, and analyzing which tokens look cheap to go long and which tokens look rich to short. Uh, and that is traded with um, some uh, order routing systems that are trying to communicate with, I think it's about 12 different exchanges. Uh, to be able to, to trade um, typically every hour or so. Uh, sometimes mm. it's, it's less frequent, sometimes more frequent. But um, we're trying to buy 
kind of the dis discrepancies, the you know, kind of the inefficiencies. Arbitrage. Yeah, there's still a lot of inefficiency in this market. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay, so the the, the main kind of most active fund uh, is the liquid token fund, um, and within that, and how big is that fund? That's uh, eight hundred. 800 million. Okay. And within that fund, you said there's 10 to 15% dedicated to these, uh, this like high frequency trading strategy, which trades every hour, just focusing on whatever opportunity like to arbitrage there is in the market. Yes. And, you know, essentially our main constraint now is order routing, you know, amongst all these mm -hmm. exchanges, you know, sometimes tokens only trade on one exchange. You know, it's very, mm -hmm. it's uh, kind of the technical issues of moving money around are the constraints not make that higher than we would uh, want it to be. Interesting. Are you are you uh, focusing mostly on centralized exchanges or are you going to DEXs as well? Both, um, you know, we're uh, both invested in and fans of both centralized exchanges and DEXs. Oh, no, but I mean, like, as kind of your your platform to, to, to buy and sell these tokens. So we do trade on both uh, DEX and oh, okay. exchanges. Essentially, we have, have a dozen different exchanges we're trying to trade with, and mm -hmm. whichever one's the cheapest or we get the most volume through. Got it. Um, and then you said something else that was super interesting. You said um, right now you are looking to increase your Bitcoin exposure um, and and sell some DeFi tokens. Uh, what what is kind of driving this move? It's uh, essentially just a reaction to the change in the value of Bitcoin. Uh, it used to be seventy percent of the market; it's down down to forty four. Uh, and around mm -hmm. here, it's worth increasing it. We've had a you know, very low exposure to Bitcoin uh, for the last six or seven months in our uh, liquid token fund, and it's. Mm -hmm. Starting to be time to add it back. Interesting. Um, so, is it a matter of just uh, looking at these these levels and, and where they they've historically been, or do you also look at things kind of more fundamentally? Maybe um, the the uh, DeFi market is. I don't know if if, if you think. Um, um, is, has been overbought and, and maybe the fundamentals aren't there yet with the prices or I don't know, is there, are there other things that you take into account to, to make these moves? We, uh, we're certainly uh, still very bullish DeFi. It's our main bet in our uh, liquid token fund. It's just mm -hmm. we've been massively underweight uh, Bitcoin having zero exposure in it. Uh, and since oh. it's come down so much, it seems like it's proven to put some of it back on. I think our liquid token funds only average seventeen percent Bitcoin over the four and a half years it's existed, whereas uh, on a market cap basis, it would have been fifty-five percent. So it's just okay. um, it's been down to zero is a, a very big bet, and we want to take that up a bit. Mm -hmm, interesting. Um, do Do you have like a a, a, a a weight, a percentage weight for, for Bitcoin that where you think it, it should be for that fund? Oh, I mean, it changes all the time. Uh, over the last six months, it's been zero. Um, it probably would go, and typically we don't own more than 20 or 25% in any mm -hmm. token, so it'd probably go into the teens. Got it. Um, so, okay, and then on, on Bitcoin, um, what uh, what's your latest uh, price uh, prediction or forecast for for this year? Do you have one? So Bitcoin's grown uh, two hundred thirty three percent a year for eleven years, and that's essentially my normal forecast. Is it'll just keep doing what it's been doing for a long time. It's had this huge downdraft, so I'm actually now more bullish than uh, normal. I, I think you know, and we wrote this in our investor letters over the last uh, two or three months. Uh, which are on our website if, if you want to check out the reasoning. But I think the, the downdraft in uh, the price of crypto generally, and specifically Bitcoin, has been a bit kind of uh, short-term issues, short-term, you know, kind of panics, I would say. Uh, and the issues that we think drove the price down are all very... Um, you know, they're not likely to persist. And so it's, it's gratifying to see that the market's already, you know, regaining 
a lot of its losses, and I think you know, over the balance of the year, it's probably going to be very strong. So yeah, it it looks like some of the drivers were uh, like China earlier this year, um, ESG concerns, uh, uh, regulatory concerns. So of those. Uh, I, I've seen you uh, explain um, why, like for for each, you, you think it's uh, you know it, it won't have a lasting impact. If maybe you can go th uh, through some of those. I, I don't know, starting with uh, environmental concerns. Um, why why don't you think that will have a lasting impact in the like the public's uh, perception of, of crypto and 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 demand for crypto? Yeah. So. Uh... In the space of just a few weeks, um, you know, some high profile people like Elon Musk went from super bullish on Bitcoin to questioning, you know, whether there's an environmental issue or an ESG issue. And so, you know, we did a, a deep dive into the ESG uh, questions on blockchain and Bitcoin specifically in our last letter. And I think the thing that to, there's, a, there's a bunch of points that are important, but if you want to start with just the first letter of ESG environment is, you know, Bitcoin does consume uh, about one-tenth of a percent of all the energy, you know, on Earth, so it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a noticeable uh, number. The thing to keep in mind, though, is, um, you know, it's still pretty small relative to a lot of other industries. Bitcoin probably has about 50% of its uh, energy coming from renewable sources, which is five times higher than the U.S. as a whole, where 11% comes from renewables. So uh, the Bitcoin mining industry is hyper-competitive, and it incentivizes uh, people to find trapped sources of energy, like hydro in areas that are too far away from urban centers to, to ship the electricity. Um, so the, you know, kind of the new, um, you know, kind of, I would say, you know, probably excessive uh, worry about energy consumption isn't um, well-founded. And then a lot of the arguments against Bitcoin are based on, uh, you know, papers, like there's a very funny one where it says that Bitcoin itself will cause two degree uh, increase in global warming based on some crazy uh, misunderstandings of Bitcoin or uh, thinking that the number of transactions drives the electricity consumption. And it isn't that way at all, that um, the uh, number of transactions has nothing to do with how much energy is used. It's just a function of the block award and how much uh, Bitcoin is being supplied to the markets. And the important point about Bitcoin is every four years, the number of Bitcoins that are issued is cut in half. And so the amount of money that miners will have to pay for electricity will be cut in half every four years uh, for the next hundred years. So. Uh, there is essentially kind of a cap on the amount of electricity Bitcoin can consume based on the, the halving. And even if the price of Bitcoin goes up uh, a, a lot, say if it went up to $320,000 for Bitcoin uh, in the next 12 years, you know, that would be amazing. I think everyone in the industry would think that's, that's amazing. That would still leave miners only the same amount of money as they have today to pay for electricity. So. Uh, people that draw these upward sloping curves for energy, you know, I think are missing how Bitcoin actually works. Um, mm -hmm. And then many of the other blockchains, you know, don't use energy for security and, you know, ease of switching to proof of stake. So the energy intensity of the blockchain industry as a whole has been declining. Uh, and then, you know, once we go to E2, it'll be much less than it is today. Uh, so all those energy concerns, I think, are not well thought through. And then the hugely important point is Bitcoin and blockchain are amazing on the other two parts of ESG, um, social and governance. They're going to provide enormous benefits to, I think, literally billions of people on Earth over the next decade. And if you weigh all those out, you know, blockchain's amazing for ESG. And that's a, a point, I think, over the next few years, you know, when people really do the work and really... Uh, think this through, they're going to realize blockchain is fantastic for ESG. Yeah, I, I have to agree. Um, so um, on on the regulatory front, which has also been kind of one of the, the um, uh, 
drivers uh, of, of crypto um, recently. What are your thoughts there? I mean, are, are you concerned uh, that the regulatory framework in the U.S. will will start to become more unfriendly towards the industry? Well, it's definitely a concern that we're, you know, always monitoring. We, we try and help uh, with, you know, policy bodies, with, with the providing facts and help, help educate. Uh, our view is, you know, most countries in, in the U.S. have been actually pretty uh, laissez-faire about blockchain. You know, they don't really do much to help it. They, they don't do much to hurt it. And in the U.S., you know, for example, most of the agencies ruled very early and very positively on Bitcoin and blockchain. Um, the IRS ruled that it's property. The OCC allows nationally chartered banks to custody crypto. CFTC has mm -hmm. always been very progressive. One of their commissioners came out to my house for a conference in 2013. Uh, so they've been, you know, very progressive. Uh, and now we have futures and, and all those things. So it really mm -hmm. is just the SEC that still has to, um, you know, work through, you know, whether certain assets are securities or not securities, which is, you know, a complicated question. Uh, so most of the regulatory bodies rule very favorably. So that's our central expectation so that that will persist. Sure. Um, so going going forward, uh, what what how do you think the macro environment will uh, continue impacting uh, crypto? So so far this year, it it seems that macro has been pretty favorable to crypto. Uh, because, well, the pandemic uh, incentivized all all of the, these uh, government aid programs and and central banks um, printing a lot of money, and that money has has gone in part to risk riskier assets uh, like crypto. Um, and I think there's also this um, social aspect of people being on their computer all the time, so spending more time. Uh, you know, buying digital assets, buying NFTs. And oh, by the way, I, I definitely want to get your thoughts on NFTs uh, question after this. Um, but so it seems like the macro environment has been pretty uh, positive um, for, for crypto. Do you think that will continue or how do you think it'll change? Oh, I think all your points are spot on. That the, the macro really is driving crypto and essentially anything that can't be quantitatively eased. Um, in the monetary and fiscal response to the pandemic has been literally off the charts. The amount of money the U.S. began printing in June last year is greater than the first 200 years of the country's existence. So we're really printing just an unbelievable amount of money. And it seems like, um, if anything, uh, you know, the size of uh, policy stimulus is growing. So um, that, I think, has the inevitable um, impact of pushing up the price of anything uh, whose quantity can't be eased. So obviously I'm excited about crypto and I'm long crypto, but uh, other things um, like stocks, real estate, uh, the U.S. median home price just had its biggest increase ever in the middle of a global depression, uh, which is, seems to be indicative. There's a lot of paper money out there chasing hard assets. We did a, a cool graphic on our Twitter feed and our website showing essentially the price of the U.S. dollar priced in quantities like barrels of oil, ounces of gold, uh, grams of sugar, things like that. And it's pretty much the same story, that all those things are relatively constant with respect to each other. It's really the U.S. dollar, or paper money generally, and that's falling. And so, um, you know, those things that can't be quantitatively eased are rallying in terms of the number of U.S. dollars it takes to buy a unit of those things. But the flip side is to think it's, you know, it's paper money that's, that's crashing. And if we, you know, keep doing this, we're going to start pushing up inflation. Inflation is uh, rising at a very fast rate now. Uh, and there's a lot of people that say, oh, it's just kind of a base effect or it's just, you know, some, something temporary. There's a, there's a lot of tightness in the labor market uh, because of essentially disincentives to, to uh, work. So we have a labor shortage in the middle of a pandemic, which is an amazing uh, outcome. And so wage rates are rising and then those uh, feedback into the price of goods. And so I really do think that, that uh, inflation is a is an issue. 
And this comes from somebody that's always been, uh, or early been, an advocate of the secular decline in inflation and the secular bull market in bonds. So, you know, I'm not, you know, some kind of person that's been a raving lunatic about hyperinflation for decades. But right now, I think the world's just changed. There's an enormous amount of money being printed, and it's, you know, fueling the price of uh, everything. And a great uh, proof of that thesis is the S&P 500 hit a record high in the middle of a global depression. I mean, you know, that's clearly from tons of paper money chasing uh, a fixed number of assets. So if that's the case, how sustainable is it uh, for crypto? I mean, if, if like if this money printing is what's driving prices right now, um, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem like that 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 should be kind of the the long term um, value uh, for for crypto, right? Like it it just seems to me that if there's this like big balloon of like fiat, uh, you know, it, just like going into all these assets, at some point that has to pop. Um, do you do you see that uh, like happening for crypto? Well, I hear what you're saying, but what I would uh, argue is it's a step up in the quantity of money, which then changes the price of everything, whether it's, you know, silver or gold or oil or median home price. Um, I can't imagine that the government would ever take that money back. You know, like they might stop printing more money, but I don't think they're going to do any mm -hmm. kind of deflationary policy. So um, it's kind of a step function. We're going to pump up the price of everything housing, S&P 500, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever. And then they might stop printing more money, but we, we're at kind of this new price level. Um, so, you know, while this impetus might stop at some point, and, you know, it, it feels like it's going to keep going for a while. Um, when it does stop, I think it will, uh, will be a new price level for, for um, cryptocurrencies. Right. And then... I the, the the stabilizing uh, uh, factor would come from um, so there's there's just there w there won't be any incentive to take uh, money away like maybe like central banks aren't going to raise rates uh, super high or anything like that um, but I, I guess the stabilizing would come from people um, just demanding. Uh, less assets just you know because that money will be used to like more will be used for more like productive things and and just like buying buying crypto yeah. <laughs> I guess my argument would be we've been bullish on crypto for eight years and mm -hmm. way before the pandemic way before the money printing because of all the underlying wonderful things that are happening you know uh, remittance mm -hmm. payments all those things that are they're going and once the money printing is over all those things will still be happening. We'll still be wildly enthusiastic about blockchain. It's this era, which you know, it's been 18 months. Might be, might be another five years. Who knows? But there's going to be an era where monetary stimulus just kind of resets the price of everything on Earth. When that's over, you know, the main driver will go back to being technology, the number of people using crypto, DeFi, you know, all these other things. It's the monetary stimulus is just kind of like an afterburner that's you know, pushing this thing faster than it would otherwise go. Uh, but when it stops burning, we're going back to all the other arguments that one would want to own crypto. Yeah, makes sense. Um, you know, one yeah. thing we, we try and do is kind of keep things in bigger picture, historical perspective. Mm -hmm. And we have a graph of the price of Bitcoin uh, all the way back 11 years graphed exponentially so you get a compound uh, growth rate and it's been pretty consistent um the average has been 233 percent a year uh and there's been some bubbles and there's been some bear markets but over the last 11 years it actually grinds up at a fairly consistent rate and because of the fall uh we've had in the last few months bitcoin as a proxy for the industry is 32 percent below its 11-year compound annual growth rate trend so um, it doesn't feel like we're in a bubble. And given, you know, mm. if you would have told me a year and a half ago that uh, that the, we were going to be doing trillions of dollars of stimulus every year in multiple trillion dollar packages and Bitcoin was only 45000 I would have said, wow, that's cheap. So I think mm. given what's happening, 
happened to still be below the long-term trend line is, is pretty remarkable. And that's why we're more bullish than normal on crypto. Super interesting. Yeah, I, I saw that chart. It, it, it does look like it, we're not in bubble territory yet compared to like 2017, 2013. Um, so, and I guess like tying back to a question I made earl earlier, like, so, so what is your uh, price target? Like how uh, you said you're more bullish than, than normal. So how, how much do you think Bitcoin will gain and, and to what price? So yeah, Bitcoin's average tripling every year over the last 11 years. Um, you know, I think in a year's time, it could be 150,000. You know, I, I think that's that's uh, quite a deal. How about for ETH? Oh, you know, I do think uh, ETH probably will outperform. So, you know, gosh, uh, 10,000, you know, in a year's time uh, could, could happen. Sorry, and those predictions are for end of 2021 or like 12 months from now? 12 months from now. Got it. Okay. Why do you think ETH will outperform BTC? Oh, yeah. there's so much uh, being built on top of it and DeFi is you know, mainly powered uh, in ETH. And I just feel like over the next uh, you know, year or so, there's going to be more interest in uh, ETH and DeFi than Bitcoin. And this is subtle. It's, you know, it's not like, you know, I think they're both going to go up a, a lot, uh, but mm -hmm. our, our fund is making a bet that uh, ETH and DeFi will outperform. So are you, you're, you're overweight ETH versus, versus Bitcoin right now, like overall? Yes, very much so. Okay. Um, what what are your thoughts on NFTs? Like, are you investing in NFT platforms or on kind of uh, tokens themselves? Like, do you own any uh, crypto funds? <laughs> yeah, so it's a great question. And I think it's NFT is very important um, space. Uh, and I think like any kind of new, really disruptive thing, there's going to be some amazingly important things created, and then there's going to be a lot of stuff that ultimately isn't important. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that, you know, like the dot-com boom, you know, there's a couple of really important companies that came out of it. A lot of companies went to zero. Uh, the ICO boom, you know, in 2017, kind of similar. You know, frankly, I think that's likely to happen in the NFT space. Um, we're investors in Maker's Place uh, and some other projects in the NFT space that provide infrastructure you know, uh, foundational um, uh, products for NFTs. I think that's a great way to play it. In terms of investing directly in NFTs, um, you know, I do think there's a lot of speculative frenzy and a lot of the things that are uh, being bought, I question whether they're going to have, you know, long-term value. Uh, mm -hmm. And I guess the, the, my perspective would be that there are some NFTs being created that can only be done with blockchain and can only be done in this format. And those I think are revolutionary and gonna have incredible long-term value. The other things that could be done kind of in the normal world, uh, well, and that's kind of like, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain five or eight years ago, you know, everyone's trying to do, you know, X, Y, Z business model, but with Bitcoin or, you know, with its own <laughs> cryptocurrency and there's no need to have blockchain or so no need to have their own cryptocurrency. And that's what I'd see here in the NFT space. There are some artists that are doing things where the artwork evolves over time, like with AI interacting with it and changing and evolving. That's really cool. Uh, performance artists doing work where the fan interaction changes the piece of art over time. Those kinds of uh, NFTs, I think, are wildly interesting. I think are going to, you know, when we look back 20 years from now, they're going to have been the important ones. The ones that are just, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a something digital that, uh, you know, like a sports thing or, uh, you know, I'm a little more worried with it. Those are going to have lasting value. Um, you know, it's like modern art, you know, uh, 80 to 100 years ago, Marcel Duchamp put a urinal on the wall of a Paris uh, gallery. And now that urinal is worth $150 million. So, you know, when people have a good idea that, you know, hadn't been done before, yeah, it's going to have a ton of value, but those are going to be rare. 
Got it. Perfect. Okay, and then to to wrap up, um, what are you most excited about uh, that's that's happening? Uh, like of all the things that that we discussed, I mean, we talked about a lot of exciting things. Um, what's going on in on ETH, uh, DeFi, well, NFTs, Bitcoin itself? Um, what's uh yeah like what's uh what's most uh fun and looks like most promising to you well from an investment standpoint i think DeFi is still the most interesting and um our biggest bets are in DeFi. uh and then from just kind of an industry standpoint we're a fund manager we're you know talking to lots of investors we've been talking to people for eight years um i'm really interested to see if this wave of institutional interest that we're seeing now uh, really kind of changes the industry to kind of a whole new level. My intuition it will, because it feels like there's some really massive entities that are thinking about putting some, some very big investments into the space, but it's going to take 12 months to kind of work through the system to see. And so, you know, if you're nice enough to have me back on the show in a year, it'll be fun to uh, see whether that happened as well. Oh, so interesting. So, um, if you can kind of give a sense of what what kinds of institutions are are looking into the space, and how do you think that that could change the blockchain industry? Well, just an example. I was talking to a very big hundred year old firm uh, yesterday, and I had met with them four or five years ago. I met with them, you know, a couple of years ago, and they said that they're. Previous CIO had said, you know, uh, no chance in hell of investing in blockchain. And for whatever reason, they have a, you know, a new CIO and it's all go, got to get invested in blockchain, got to find out. Oh, what's wow. Going. And so, you know, we do see a lot of those, you know, big institutions we've been talking to for a long time that, you know, really just kind of had a, you know, no chance of investing now really flipping around the other way. And you've seen it on Wall Street, right? Uh, the big Wall Street mm -hmm. firms for a long time try to keep blockchain at, at bay. And, you know, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, you know, a lot of firms are now offering Bitcoin or blockchain products, right? So we're doing a complete uh, zero to one switch from, you know, institutions trying to avoid blockchain to, uh, you know, really having to get involved. And again, I don't want to like, jump up and down and say, I know this is it. And, you know, it's definitely going to be uh, every institution changing, but it just kind of feels like it. My intuition is over the next 12 months, there's going to be some really big institutions make meaningful commitments to the space. And, you know, it is still a relatively small space, you know, it's two trillion total assets. Um, you know, some of these big institutions come in, it really will uh, move the markets. So very interesting. Awesome. Well, that's a, a great place, place to wrap up, I think, Dan. Uh, this, this has been amazing. Thank you so much uh, for joining me again. It was great. Hey, thank you so much. It's been fun. And before we close, here's another word about our awesome sponsors. The Index Co-op is on a mission to make crypto investing simple, accessible and safe for everyone. They've built the market-leading index products, DPI, the DeFi Pulse Index, MPI, the Metaverse Index, and BED, for one-click crypto exposure. Additionally, their flexible leverage series grants safe 2x exposure to popular crypto assets like ETH or BTC, with low liquidation risk and low cost to maintain your position. To buy or learn more about these products, go to indexcoop.com. Experience DeFi. Deposit, earn, and borrow on Aave. Aave is a decentralized, open-source, and non-custodial liquidity protocol to earn interest on deposits and borrow assets. Deposit and start earning interest in real-time directly in your wallet, and swap any of your deposited assets at any time to get some of the best deals on the market. Aave protocol liquidity pools are now available on Ethereum and on the sidechain Polygon. Head over to app.ave.com to get started today. Don't let high gas costs keep you out of Ethereum. At Balancer, you can trade all you want and get most of the gas costs back in your pocket. In their new Bal for Gas campaign, traders are receiving six figures worth of Bal tokens every week. And with V2 just around the corner, Balancer is becoming the one-stop shop for DeFi liquidity. 
Balancer V2 brings stable pools and weighted pools tightly integrated under a single protocol, flash loans lending via asset managers, and much more. Check it out at balancer.finance. Enzyme provides an easy way to build, scale, and monetize DeFi investment strategies. If high gas prices are shutting you out of DeFi, fear not. Enzyme is now running a gas subsidy program. The app makes it easy for investors to pull together on strategies lowering costs. The Enzyme interface allows anyone to trade, lend, deposit to AMM pools, farm, stake, and more. It is a non-custodial solution and allows for real-time reporting, security, and transparency. Sign up today on Enzyme.finance. The new Kraken app is one of the best places to invest in some of the most popular DeFi assets like Uniswap, Aave, Polkadot tokens, and more. Just download the app and get started in minutes. Plus, you can earn additional rewards through Kraken's industry-leading staking product. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% annually on some of your favorite cryptos. Sign up today at kraken.com defiant or type Kraken in the App Store to learn more. I'll continue to interview all the major founders and influencers in this emerging space. When DeFi eats the world, you can say you heard them here first. Tune in next week.